I think what's really new though and novel is that now uh, all of the large industries has realized that taking action on climate is also good for business. And that's the key part here, right? Is, is that's where I think like, if you look at a lot of the energy transition work that's happening right now, it's just it's cheaper. It's just better business to, to provide low carbon energy sources and concrete. Now the industry is, is saying this is not a compliance issue anymore. It's, it's not just an investor relations issue is this allows me to sell more concrete and reduce my costs. That's good business. Welcome to Sustainability Leaders. I'm Michael Torrance, Chief Sustainability Officer with BMO Financial Group. On this show, we will talk with leading sustainability practitioners from the corporate, investor, academic, and NGO communities to explore how this rapidly evolving field of sustainability is impacting global investment, business practices, and our world. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of Bank of Montreal, its affiliates or subsidiaries. Hello, and welcome to BMO Sustainability Leaders Podcast. My name is Jonathan Hackett, and I'm the Managing Director and Head of BMO Sustainable Finance Group. Today, I'm joined in conversation by two very special guests. Scott Bryson is a BMO Vice Chair for Investment and Corporate Banking. But for 21 years before that, he was a member of parliament for King's Hans, Nova Scotia, and was president of the Treasury Board and Minister for Digital Government. In 2005, he established the first Office for Greening of Government, and in 2016 established the Center for Greening Government within the Treasury Board. Scott and I will be speaking with Robert Niven, CEO and founder of Carbon Cure Technologies, a Nova Scotian company that manufactures a technology introducing recycled CO2 into fresh concrete to reduce its carbon footprint without compromising performance. I'd like to start by passing the microphone over to Scott to begin the conversation. Hi, Rob. It's great to have you with us today, and we're very proud of some of the success you've had in Carbon Cure recently. I want to go back to when things were getting started in 2006. You were a university student, and you went to Nairobi for the COP meeting at that time. And you had an opportunity to meet Nicholas Stern, the uh, former chief economist of the World Bank, who at that time had just issued his very important report on climate change and the impact on the global economy. What took you there as a student at that time? and, And how important was that discussion in terms of your thinking around climate change and how to tackle it? Hi, Scott, and, and great to be here. Thank you as well, Jonathan. Always happy to talk about technology, business, and climate and through the lens of the Carbon Cure story. That conference of parties for the, for the United Nations was, was actually extremely important for me, both personally and professionally. And I would say meeting Sir Nicholas Stern was the second most important meeting I had. The, the first was actually meeting the sister of my wife today. Um, so I, I can't overlook that. And um, that was by far more, more important. But going back to your your question, I think at that point, that was such an important statement for not only myself at that report, uh, but also the the broader business community. Today, it it would just make sense. But back then, having someone so credible from the finance world come out and make the business case for taking aggressive action on climate change really brought this issue 
well beyond just the activist point of view and brought it into very firmly and, and centrally into the business narrative. And we look at where we are today, where finance is, is continuing to make very strong statements and contributing to leadership in this space that's only becoming more and more amplified. So that, w- that was certainly a very important COP. Um, the year prior, I was in Montreal, and that was also very formative at those meetings, where it was an opportunity for me to realize that the research I was doing at McGill University actually mattered from a climate perspective, and there was a real opportunity to help people. So COP early on has been very important, and I haven't been to one in years, but I, I certainly am very appreciative and grateful for all that it's given me. So at the time when, when you launched Carbon Cure, that was before uh, much of the world has put a price on carbon that governments, uh, capital markets, um, and, and citizenry seem to have been, become more aligned as of late. And now in addition to people like Sir Nicholas Stern, you've got Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, Mark Carney, business people who really get it and are driving change. What's the environment today for a clean tech startup versus when you started up at that time? You know, what are the tailwinds like today versus potentially swimming against the current when you first got started? Well, I think it's also good to think about the situation back then. It was also in a recession, you know, with, uh, you know, the housing market crash and so on. It it was a very difficult time. So let's, you know, let's look back then and think about what it was like. So recession, no one was buying anything discretionary, especially novel clean technologies. There was no support of climate policy, whether that be pricing or procurement or what have you. But I think that really made us strong and lean. It meant that we had to develop technologies on a shoestring budget that made sense for business. And uh, without sounding too much like, you know, a grumpy old man saying, you know, the kids these days have it easy. I don't think I'm quite there yet. But today you can make business cases around climate technologies that only deliver CO2 reductions. And there's a lot of other sort of market drivers that can make these quite viable. But I think those that are really going to excel in the future are those that can combine the both the business model, the value propositions, and strong climate impacts. And I think that's that's our case, certainly, and that's going to make us much more resilient and successful in the future. Maybe it'd be a good place to dive in on what is Carbon Cure and what do you do as a company? So I'm the CEO and founder of Carbon Cure Technologies. And what we do is use carbon dioxide in the normal concrete manufacturing process, where it's converted back into a mineral, which provides concrete increased strength, economic production efficiencies, and of course, a lower carbon footprint. This is really important because we retrofit existing concrete plants, and it can be any of the 100,000 concrete plants in the world today. But it's really important to talk a bit about cement and concrete as well, and just to help the listeners understand that this is, this is the most abundant man-made material on the planet after drinking water. It is approaching 50 billion tons of product being produced every single year. And of course, anything that you produce with that magnitude is going to have a very significant carbon footprint. 
But there is a specific reaction in the cement that makes concrete. That's really important to understand. And that's a, a step called calcination, where you turn limestone into uh, clinker, the precursor to cement. And this process is very carbon intensive. So what Carbon Cure does is we actually reverse that reaction while concrete is being made to provide concrete producers with these competitive economic and sustainability advantages. And Rob, as you think about the evolution of the company from you know initial technologies into a multi-solution approach, can you tell us about that journey? But also, you know, as you talk about the abundance of concrete, what's the scale of what you're really trying to achieve? Yeah, let's do the scale question first. So whenever I I I, I like to introduce Carbon Cure, I, I always like to start with our mission because it is our North Star. It's what guides all of our decisions, whether it be growth or innovation. And our mission as a company is to reduce 500 million tons of CO2 annually by the year 2030. Our, our vision as a company is to create the global standard for producing low carbon and circular concrete production. So right at the core of our business is a very strong climate mandate. But by nature of what we do is it's inextricable between having business success and climate success. So this allows us to have um, a very clear eyed view on how we want to grow the business and where we can you know, have those rewards that are not only uh, business related, but also drive sustainability. So, Rob, you, you grew Carbon Cure and drove its success. During a time, for instance, uh, when you didn't have supportive government policy necessarily in the form of carbon pricing or, or the embedding of uh, environmental responsibility into market pricing, those, these kinds of things. So how did you get your clients, these ready-mix companies, convinced to uh, buy your product in a time when the environment may not have been their their key focus, uh, you know, you you actually successfully convinced ready mix companies in jurisdictions where climate change really wasn't as big an issue before governments really supported. So, what was the business case taking out the climate change side? What is the business case for your clients using carbon cure technology? Well, I would say it was an issue. It was just a hostile issue, (laughs) one that you just couldn't even bring up. So in fact, it worked against you uh, and many jurisdictions. So it once again goes back to that point is you have to make good technology that drives economic value. The CO2 is the icing on the cake. And it also has to make sense is this is a very lean and critically important industry is they don't have a, a lot of time to slow down operations or devote attention to other things. It's a critical volume business. So we had to create the right technologies that were just dropped in uh, without impacting their production and then have them run without, um, without operators even noticing. But they also had to be good for the bottom line. And that was really critical for us to be able to develop these, these simple uh, retrofit solutions that today we actually have no CapEx and create economic value that um, provides them a net benefit. So these are um, these are the sort of critical hallmarks on on how we meet our 500 megaton challenge. We've actually written this all out, uh, and it's posted online. That talks about how we think about decarbonizing this industry and how we plan to meet 500 megatons. And this is our 
500 megaton roadmap and I'd welcome anyone to come and download a copy and, and see how we plan to achieve this goal. So Rob, it's interesting as you talk about, you know, that bottom line picture and being able to be accretive to those operations. One lens that we're hearing about more frequently is the concept of a green premium that Bill Gates and the team at Breakthrough Energy have been centering their efforts like the Catalyst program around. How would you frame Carbon Cure's proposition in the context of that concept? I, I think the more broader point that they're making is we need to bring procurement off the sidelines. Today, government is, is tends to have that disassociated with their climate targets or even private sector. If these are targets that you're trying to achieve, you should be bringing your best players onto the field. And I would say there's, there's nothing more impactful than procurement. And this is how you're really going to scale up innovations. There's a lot of great ideas out there, but if you really want to see them scale up, buy the products and create the market signals that will not only draw new innovations into the innovation pipeline and move through their technology readiness levels, TRL, but those that are ready to scale, this will have them scale much faster. And the green premium is, uh, as, as Bill Gates discusses, is meant to be a temporary measure to be able to just activate some of these, these uh, technology deployment cost reduction curves so that they, they eliminate these premiums and so that they can just be competitive on an apples to apples basis. So fortunately for Carbon Cure, we're already there, but we still need those procurement signals to be able to prioritize low carbon procurement so that governments benefit from reducing their CO2 emissions but they also help industry give them the confidence to adopt clean technologies. Because if they're not hearing it from their customers, of which concrete, our government purchases more concrete than, than anyone else, then they're just not going to do it. So we, we need to make it very clear um, that this is the direction that we want the products that we build with uh, to have low carbon um, benefits. And they don't have to come at a premium. How should government write specifications for the concrete they buy to make it easier for technology like Carbon Cure to be part of the solution? Now, I, I know you've done an awful lot of this in your political life, uh, Scott, and I think you appreciate how important it is. And we've broken it down into three steps. Uh, one is we need to write performance-based standards for whatever you're purchasing. You wouldn't believe how many standards were written in the 1950s um, or, or of that era when certainly climate change wasn't an issue, but they're very prescriptive. So things like minimum cement contents, which in many ways can actually impact the quality of the concrete, but they can definitely increase the price and most definitely increase the carbon impact of, of concrete products. That's just an example. But the general concept of step one is remove barriers for progress and innovation. So write performance-based standards. The second step is you have to be working with real data. And there is no trade-offs here. There's no compromise. Is It has to be uh, high-quality uh, environmental uh, transparency or, or data. So you actually know what you're buying. Like you wouldn't buy a box of cereal without having a nutritional label on the side to see, you know, what your fiber content is or what have you. And the same thing needs to be the case for building products. And, and this system already exists. It's commonly used in private sector. It's called environmental product declarations. And there's a life cycle assessment methodology behind it 
There's people who spend their careers doing this, but we need to make this mandatory. You know, Rob, you mentioned uh, cereal. There will come a day where the carbon footprint of that cereal will be on the cover too. Uh, it's already happening in places like, like Europe. And it, it certainly will need to be happening for all consumer products and building products. So this idea of transparency is super important. And then the last last step, Scott, is is we have to create some kind of clear procurement preference or some some signal. And uh, I would point to, I think, the best models, one just coming out of New York State right now called the Low Embodied Carbon Concrete Leadership Act, otherwise known as LECLA, that really packages all of these elements together and build upon a great body of work that has been done largely in the United States called Buy Clean. But to me, this is one that drives immediate impacts and decarbonization from heavy industry, but doesn't necessarily come with a green premium. So Rob, uh, the inception of Carbon Cure and the growth of Carbon Cure has happened at the same time as the fourth industrial revolution, the internet of everything. How important is digital to your success to date, and as you move forward and expand into other technologies to fulfill your mission, how important is digital going to be to making that happen? Great question. I, and this has been another change from when I started in this, this business. Typically, you had hardware and software, two different kinds of companies, right? Or you know, materials or mechanical it's all blending now. And the way that I look at, at digital is it's an absolute necessity above any type of hardware business. So this was something that we had started when we realized that the way that we were deploying and managing our technology, which was very analog, uh, we had to put people on planes and we had to go physically be there to check a system, things today that we would never dream of. And and we made an investment to embrace uh, digital years ago, and that allowed us to scale. And it was mainly in, uh, initially used as a way from preventative maintenance and monitoring. But once COVID hit, I can tell you, <laughs> we were awfully thankful that we had this infrastructure in place because no longer were we able to send engineers, even if we wanted to, not only to maintain these things, but also to install and, and support and optimize their, their impacts. So we doubled in size last year due to COVID and, and the year before. And uh, that was entirely due to digital. So that is just sort of maintaining the course. What I see about the future with digital, though, is it allows us to be able to draw data from all of these production facilities and find other ways that we can create value for this industry to help them decarbonize, mostly through material efficiency. And, and also to report the environmental impacts of these products in real time, which can be used for things like carbon markets or for procurement. So it's, it's very, very important. And I think if you were to look at our organizational chart today, uh, you might even think that we're a software company. We are investing so much into this space because we think it's critically important to meet our mission. So you're a leader in, in the carbon capture, utilization, and storage space. And how big do you see that global market today? And how big do you think it's going to be in the future? And what's, what's driving that? Obviously, people continue to build a lot of stuff out of concrete, but help us quantify that opportunity. They say and expect it to be a, a $1 trillion market opportunity that can reduce 15% of worldwide greenhouse gas emissions. 
and that's for the general space of, of CO2 utilization. And that's basically turning CO2 into products. And that's also leaving out a lot of the geological sequestration. And of course, all of these technologies are, require some form of captured CO2. So that's the first enabling step of CO2 capture. We're also hearing a lot about an, a new term that's called carbon removal. And this is um, going to be a necessary technology to meet our net zero targets uh, for both corporate targets and governments. And um, how, how this is uh, related is that carbon removal technologies is a way of, of pulling CO2 out of the atmosphere. And that can be done through biological systems or machines. And then once you have that CO2 captured, you can use it in systems like Carbon Cure that permanently sequester the CO2 away or a variety of other ways to actually use the CO2. So we're the value creating side of carbon removal technologies. And when coupled with atmospheric CO2 capture, we become that complete carbon removal technology. And so there is a, um, a lot of terminology in this space about CCS, carbon capture utilization and storage, carbon removal. I won't bore the listeners by explaining what these all mean, but uh, they, all, they are all interconnected. And the key to the success of this space, absent of any climate price or carbon price or climate policy, is creating value-added products from using that CO2. And there's no bigger opportunity, bar none, than concrete. And I mean that by also including aggregates. So it is by far the, the largest market opportunity. What kind of market share do you have or does Carbon Cure have in that carbon capture utilization space? When it comes to CO2 utilization deployment, Carbon Cure would represent over 95% of worldwide deployment. Today, we're installed in a little over 350 plants for four continents. And we're putting in about 50, we're on pace right now of 50 new plants per quarter. And that's continuing to scale up faster and faster. You mentioned carbon markets and the concept of carbon removal. How do you think of the evolution of carbon offset markets as our focus really gets to net zero? And we see efforts like Mark Carney's Voluntary Carbon Market Task Force. Do you think the definition of a carbon credit will have to evolve as we focus much more on the, the 2050 time horizon? Great topic. And I think, I think carbon markets are evolving radically, violently, <laughs> suddenly. Um, there's there's been a lot of exposure recently, and there's been some great coverage by Bloomberg on this about really concerning issues on additionality. So whether the purchase carbon offset actually led to emission reductions at all or, por- or partly. Uh, and this, this erodes confidence and buyers in this space. And then ultimately, it will lead to a reduction in price. And you could say it might even delay progress on climate mitigation. So these are very serious issues. So there's a lot of reform that's going underway right now. And the key term to think about is quality. We need to be able to reform these markets so that we're emphasizing quality above all else. And that includes concepts like additionality, uh, permanence, and we're I'm seeing a lot of the discussions lead to is an emphasis on carbon removal credits. 
there tends from a climate strategy perspective, both corporate or government is to say, I think everybody agrees is we need to reduce first. We need to drive out as much CO2 from our supply chain and our operations, energy use and so on. But there's always going to be something left over. So we need to deploy carbon removal technologies. And we also then if there's anything remaining from there is we'll need to deploy and use uh, carbon removal offsets because they are the highest quality permanent option to use. The issue is the supply of these, what you would call CDR offsets, carbon dioxide removal offsets, is very limited. And a number of tech companies are understanding the scarcity of this marketplace and are buying up a lot of the um, of the offsets to apply them against their climate commitments, recognizing that they'll stand up to the test of time for quality. And there's a scarce supply. So they're uh, early movers and purchasing these CDR offsets. And we've been happy to participate in this marketplace as a seller. So Bill Gates uh, in his book, How to Avoid a Climate Disaster, has identified some of the key areas of focus for innovation if we really want to move the needle on climate change. You've obviously, based on your background as a chemist and an engineer, you have focused on the area uh, you know best and have built a business model around that. As you uh, get momentum and as you raise capital and if you, as you look at the future, given that you're very mission focused and your mission really is, is, is most important to you and that is that 500 megatons per year of removal. Do you see the growth in that area of building for you or do you potentially see in the future, some of the other areas like agriculture and transport and electricity, are you going to be like the, the Elon Musk guy who's so smart and so visionary that you're, you're able to lead us into new areas once you have really demonstrated success in the area of building? Well, I think what I really admire from some of the business leaders and that are mission, mission led around climate. So, Elon Musk would be one of them, Jigger Shah, someone outside Meyer, is uh, they've not only innovated around technology, but they also innovated around supply chain integration, but probably most importantly, business model. You know, from my understanding, at least, if it wasn't for a lot of the pioneering work on business model innovation by Jigger Shah, uh, we wouldn't have the distributed solar market as we have today. It would be sort of a, a goofy technology that people and <laughs> certain parts of the world, you know, put on their roofs to have their off-grid cabins, but it's mainstream today. And it's a lot about business model and about creating the bankability of these, um, of these contracts, these off-take uh, agreements. So I, I would say like, what does our path look like? We feel like there's lifetimes of, of work to be done in concrete. It's, it's such an important and hard to decarbonize industry. It's one where there's just such great opportunity for innovation with both technology, innovation, hardware, digital material. And we're having a lot of fun in this space. There will likely be some spillover into some other industries, but we're very happy to focus on concrete and work up and down the value chain. And there is a, a, lot, of, uh, a lot of really interesting work to be done here. And the digital side will help improve accountability and help companies that are really focused on the mission of climate change and are authentically aligned with with those objectives rise above the greenwashers 
I would think digital plays a very important role in terms of holding people to account and holding companies and even banks to account. Absolutely. Yeah, the role of AI or machine learning in, in climate technology is, is really critical. I don't think it's a coincidence that Microsoft and Amazon are some of our largest investors in the company, and they don't necessarily have large concrete operations in their business. So there's other reasons that, that drew them to invest in Carbon Cure, and certainly our climate impact was one of them, but so with digital. And we think there's a great opportunity to help in the digital transformation of the concrete industry through clean technology introduction. And that allows us to have that uh, tip of the spear for us to be able to provide additional value and decarbonization. So you started Carbon Cure in Halifax, Nova Scotia. How important was Nova Scotia as an ecosystem to start and grow Carbon Cure? Yeah, I'm, I'm so happy that Nova Scotia uh, was my adopted home. And I, I went there, if you remember, I met my wife in, in Nairobi, but I, I followed her to Halifax and um, she was going to law school at the time. So I, I grew some roots and started the company. And that was another great decision that I had have ever made. And I often say to people that Carbon Cure likely wouldn't be the success that it is today if it wasn't for our roots in Nova Scotia. And this will um, always be our home. And we have not only are physically located there as our, our head office, but it's also who we are. Our identity and our culture is based upon the Atlantic Canadian culture. And you know, we're definitely a mission-led organization, but we also recognize that Culture is the fuel that drives us. It's not capital or diplomas or what what have you. It really is culture and having and creating and sustaining that within your organization. And a lot of that is our Nova Scotia roots. And that will continue to play out as we expand globally as we'll always be able to take a bit of Nova Scotia and export that as we export our technologies and hire on new people. But from a starting perspective, it was a very supportive ecosystem. I remember moving to Nova Scotia without knowing anyone and being introduced to Bert Frizzell, um, the CEO of, of uh, the Shaw Group, a very prominent construction and building materials company, sitting down for coffee for him and brazenly asking if he could let me muck around in his plant without really knowing anything at that time. And he said, sure. And he not only said yes, but he also devoted resources. He, he let us use his products. And, and that was transformational for us as a company because we were able then to go from concept to industrial deployment almost overnight and make all of those mistakes that we needed to make much faster and in a very supportive setting. And that has allowed us then to be able to scale up and the way that I look at Nova Scotia or Atlantic Canada in general is, is it's um, a very large laboratory. It's everything that would be in much larger economies is available in Nova Scotia, but everything is just connected in that sort of social networks much more tightly so that you can get things done. As you know, Scott, better than I do is, you know, everyone is only one degree of separation. So you can you can get things done very quickly just with a few phone calls, whether that be connecting with the premier or the CEO of a utility or a concrete plant. I think that's an, a great place to ask a, a connected question, which is, you know, that's about the connections and about the way that people supported you. 
What about capital? How have you seen capital availability supporting clean tech in Canada change over the last few years? And do you think there are gaps for funding the success stories like you in, in Canada? This interview is giving me nightmares because I just think about the conditions that we started our company. I couldn't imagine it being any worse. Like, not only was it recession, but it was also the collapse of clean tech 1.0, the financing world, where just saying the words clean tech were allergic. Um, no one wanted to get anywhere near that. So, yeah, it was hard. And fortunately, we were able to benefit from a lot of the support of R&D innovation uh, programs in Canada and also some from the region and provincially. So that allowed us to weather the storm and to be able to get our feet below us and go out and raise some venture capital. And as most Canadian venture capital companies, as you start off with small dollars, reasonable valuations, exactly the opposite of the things that you're seeing coming out of Silicon Valley today. But that kept us tight, feet grounded, lean, and really focused on serving the customer and creating value. So once again, I think being starved a little bit makes you a stronger company. But then again, if you look at the situation today, you know, talking about carbon removal or ESG, climate tech, there's limitless capital. It, it's you know, decent companies and some very bad companies are raising a lot of money in this space, whether it be through SPACs, private equity or venture capital or families and friends. So the world is totally different. I could surmise on why that would be. But there is such a strong appetite for uh, capital availability today that I wouldn't say that it's uh, one of those top three barriers to growth any longer. What's your advice to investors and consumers in terms of identifying who's for real in terms of clean tech and who's greenwashing? Yeah, greenwashing is the like poison pill for all of this momentum right now is there's always going to be some bad actors, whether intentional or not, that can really stop the music from this dance that's happening and this great progress that's necessary for us to meet our climate targets, which is so important. So we need to be able to drive that out. So if I was speaking to a consumer, I would go back to that transparency discussion is we really do have to demand that procurement decisions are being made with the information. <laughs> it shouldn't sound foreign and, it, and I don't think it does, but we need to make sure that we have that data to make good data-driven decisions on procurement. We just don't have time to throw money at, at greenwashing. And that can apply to the full range of products and not just low carbon concrete, certainly. Uh, for investors, yeah, of course, it depends on where you are in your growth stage. But whenever possible, I would, I would naturally look to see who's, who's using the technology, if that makes sense. Uh, so what is the... Um, what, what is the industry doing as it relates to adoption? And it doesn't necessarily have to be like the biggest names, like because those aren't necessarily the first um, movers for adopting technology. If you're familiar with crossing the chasm is it tends to be smaller players, but are just as valid from the credibility perspective. Um, so see how deployment's looking and see what that customer experience is like. Yeah. And Rob, I, I feel like we'd be remiss if we didn't dive into your recent news. Recently, you won the $20 million Carbon X Prize. What does the recognition that comes with that mean? And obviously, what, what does that mean in terms of your growth plans to have that capital support at the same time? And we were thrilled to be listed as, a, as the winner of the Carbon X Prize. Uh, this is a, a global competition 
uh, with third-party validation that uh, took five years uh, to run its course. Just thinking about how our business has changed and how many more gray hairs I have on my head during that time. But fortunately, that competition ran parallel with the path that we were taking for our business as well. So it made a lot of sense. And it's been extremely important and it's something I'm so proud of. And one of those few sort of professional achievements that you can really take with you and, uh, and be proud of for a long time. I think about being a, a younger man and seeing Richard Branson stand on the uh, Ansari X Prize and the spacecraft there after winning the first X Prize. That was pretty cool. And I, I still remember back then it left, a, it left a mark on me. I certainly hope that <laughs> I don't purport to be Richard Branson, but I, I do hope that people, young entrepreneurs are, and innovators are inspired by the X Prize process and see the work that a Canadian company from Nova Scotia was able to achieve and compete against the world's best. So we're, yeah, are we proud of it? You're right, we are. And I'm so happy that it was such a team effort that really brought us all together and, and gives us so much more momentum to go and tackle those, those big challenges that we're pursuing as it relates to our mission. The capital is going to be used to accelerate our international growth, as well as bring more technologies to market sooner that use more CO2 to be able to help us meet our mission. But we also want to create a legacy of this is we're going to devote some of those funds to create a long-term like X prize legacy where we're investing in social equity uh, opportunities within, within our communities that we serve uh, ones that promote climate action and give us something uh, or use this as a way that we can give back to communities to be able to help with some of this, these equity issues uh, that we see so prevalently as it relates to climate change. The last thing is visibility is the, you know, there was 150 million people that we tracked with our PR that, that received this news about, about carbon cure and, and our X prize win. That's, that's a lot of eyeballs. And these will be all different types of stakeholders both in government and industry, general public, all play an important role in accelerating the carbon utilization space and specifically the scale up even of our own company. And it's with so worldwide and, and, and coverage is that's going to be able to create that welcome mat for us as we move into, into more and more markets. So Rob, you'd mentioned a moment ago that when you started Carbon Cure, it wasn't actually an August time to try to launch a clean tech company in the throes of a global recession when people were kind of allergic to clean tech. And I remember in 2006, 2007 in the US, in Congress, people like Lindsey Graham and Susan Collins, Republicans, were working with people like Ed Markey on carbon pricing. At the time, there was a global consensus. Al Gore was, you know, leading a, a change in thinking, and it seemed very real then. But then the global financial crisis hit. And suddenly all those objectives were subordinated and clean tech was uh, put on the back burner and almost thrown off the stove altogether. So what is different this time? I think there was some fear that COVID and the impact of COVID might have a similar effect to the clean tech momentum that existed pre-COVID. That's not happened. In fact, it seems that in fact, the focus on on clean tech and climate change solutions 
have, if anything, accelerated during this period? What's different this time? And is it going to be sustained? Is there a risk of uh, falling behind if we don't keep focused on real results here? I would answer this in two ways. As you know, back then, certainly there was an appreciation of the science and impacts on populations um, on, of climate change. I think that's strengthened where we understand that's so much better today and we've bared witness to how climate can impact people's livelihoods and the economy. So I think that part is strengthened from back then to what it is today. So that's going to become a more prominent driver uh, for taking action on climate change and it's going to sustain that momentum going forward. I think what's really new though and novel is that now uh, all of the large industries has realized that taking action on climate is also good for business. And that's the key part here, right? Is, is that's where I think like, if you look at a lot of the energy transition work that's happening right now, it's just cheaper. It's just better business to, to provide low carbon energy sources or in, in, in concrete. Now the industry is, is saying this is not a compliance issue anymore. It's, um, it's not just an investor relations issue is this allows me to sell more concrete and reduce my cost. That's good business. And every industry will have that narrative now where they're, they're realizing that there are real business opportunities to pursue these climate initiatives. So I, I think those are two critical items here and we, we need both. Uh, it can't just be business led. It also ha- government has an important role here to play to, to certainly look after uh, populations that are impacted by climate change and that we we act together in a multilateral basis to make sure that we reduce the um, ppms of um, of co2 in the atmosphere so rob scott thanks for the lively discussion today it was uh, really informative and very much looking forward rob to seeing all of the progress that you and carbon cure are making uh, as you grow and hit that 500 million tons per year goal Thanks for listening to Sustainability Leaders. This podcast is presented by BMO Financial Group. To access all the resources we discussed in today's episode and to see our other podcasts, visit us at bmo.com forward slash sustainability leaders. You can listen and subscribe free to our show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider, and we'll greatly appreciate a rating and review and any feedback that you might have. Our show and resources are produced with support from BMO's marketing team and Puddle Creative. Until next time, I'm Michael Torrance. Have a great week. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of Bank of Montreal, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. This is not intended to serve as a complete analysis of every material fact regarding any company, industry, strategy, or security. This presentation may contain forward-looking statements. Investors are cautioned not to place undue reliance on such statements as actual results could vary. This presentation is for general information purposes only and does not constitute investment, legal, or tax advice, and is not intended as an endorsement of any specific investment product or service. Individual investors should consult with an investment, tax, and or legal professional about their personal situation. Past performance is not indicative of future results.